This morning, I am putting all of my cards on the table. I want to tackle head-on one of the most important questions that the church is facing today. What makes a church grow? What makes a church grow? If you just look at the statistics that are coming out of the SBC right now, in the church in America today, it's kind of an important question, isn't it? If you think about it. How do churches grow? In a day and age where this week, 100 to 200 SBC churches will close their doors for the last time, how do we grow as a church? In the face of this daunting question that has people writing books and doing all these conferences, I want to do something audacious. I want to do something drastic. I think that Jesus gave us a principle and a key to understanding church growth in a very simple principle. I want to claim that Jesus expects his churches to be growing, but not only expects it, but guarantees that his church will grow. So if you have a copy of God's Word, let me invite you to open up to the Gospel of John. I would really recommend for you to pull out a text this morning, or pull out a phone, whatever works well for you. We'll be in chapter 12. We have one verse we're considering. I have 30 minutes, so one verse is good enough time for that. It's 1224, but for context, we'll be starting in 1220. So our text is found in the final week of Jesus' life and ministry. In John 12, starting in verse 20, John, the apostle, records that Jesus is in the final week of his life and ministry, in the week of the Passover. At that time, some God-fearing Greeks approached Philip one of the disciples about getting a special meeting with Jesus. And then our verse picks up, our text picks up in verse 20. The word of the Lord. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. And so they came to Philip, who, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, Truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. I think our text boils down to a pretty straightforward principle. That's the main point of this sermon. When the seed enters into the ground and dies, it bears fruit. It's pretty simple. When the seed enters into the ground and dies... It bears fruit. So our first point is pretty simple. Point one, the seed. If you're taking notes, I'm just throwing curveballs at you guys. The seed. So many of us are familiar with the nature of gardening and principles around that. You take some seeds, you put them into the ground, and with a green thumb and a little love, right, you get some crops. So for example, we don't really grow, do we grow wheat around here? Maybe I'm just not familiar with Georgia, Georgia agriculture. Well, we don't usually grow wheat in our backyards, but how about watermelons? So you can go to Home Depot and buy a pack of watermelon seeds for $1.35. You take them home, a little bit of love, you have an entire crop of watermelons, hopefully. That one seed pack, $1.35 at Home Depot, produces this entire crop that I'm getting ready for at Kroger, four or five bucks a melon, right? But the metaphor focuses specifically on the role of the seed because the seed has the most important part to play. And Jesus personifies it by saying that it 
dies. It goes into the ground, and it gives itself up to death. Now from that spot comes a plant, comes life. In giving itself up, that one seed will produce an abundance of crops and even other seeds. From that one plant, a harvest will come. So that seed has two options. It can remain alone, doesn't have to die. It can keep itself, but it won't bear any fruit. But if it dies, if it enters into the ground, never to come back from where it once was, it will bear fruit. Why is that important? Look back at verse 23. What does Jesus say there? The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The hour Jesus is referring to here is the hour of his death. He knows he came to earth to do one thing, one thing we've spent a lot of time singing about. Jesus came to die for his people, to take away their sins. Because if you look at the Bible, humanity has been in cosmic rebellion against God ever since our first parents disobeyed God's word. Men and women have continually sinned against God and sinned against each other, and all of us have fallen under the judgment of God. The Bible says that the spiritual state of every person left to themselves is one of spiritual death. Ephesians 2 says that every human being is dead in their sins before God. What does it look like at the heart level? We do not desire God. We are enslaved to our desires. And every person because of this will end their life in the ground dead because of sin. Knowing all of this, God sent his son into the world to save sinners. So if the time for Jesus to be glorified has come, the seed is an analogy for the how of Jesus intends to glorify himself. Because Jesus, the God-man, comes into the world that he created and gives up his life, enters into the dirt that he formed in order to save sinners from their sins. He paid the penalty that our sins deserved when he went to the cross. He took the full wrath of God and died and was placed into the ground. So here's your question. Who's the seed in the analogy? It is Jesus. Jesus is the seed that did not remain alone, but goes into the ground and dies. But something unnatural from our perspective happened. Jesus broke death. You ever think about that? He, the righteous one, did not deserve to die, but actually to live. So death spat him back out. But when Jesus came forth from the empty tomb, do you know what also came forth with him? What is the fruit of Jesus' death and resurrection? Resurrection life. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead bursts forth as the spiritual fruit from Jesus' death and resurrection. Because all spiritual life in a fallen world comes from Jesus' empty tomb. Because he was the seed that did not remain alone, but died, and now he bears much fruit. You guys know what this fruit of resurrection power looks like today? You got Christians, and you have churches. Because God uses the same power that brought Jesus out of the tomb 
to bring individuals who were dead in their sins back to life. And in the place of hearts that do not honor or desire God, he gives them new hearts. And if you're a Christian, at some point this has happened to you. You have come from death to life. But also, the power of the resurrection manifests itself in the local church. Because what churches are, are places where individuals who have all experienced this miraculous resurrection power come together united in that gospel and display God's saving power to the world. That's a lot of great stuff from this one text. But what does any of that have to do with church growth? But just think critically about what Jesus is saying here. If a seed enters into the ground and dies, it bears fruit. Did Jesus enter into the ground and die? Yes. Then he will bear fruit. It's simple. Because Jesus died, the source of all spiritual life enters into the ground He is going to bear spiritual fruit. That's your principle for church growth. Jesus will give spiritual life to Christians and to churches. At one level, to doubt that would be to completely doubt the completeness of what Jesus did on the cross. Because to say that Jesus died to bear fruit, but that Christians aren't aren't and churches are not really going to grow, challenges the basis of the gospel. Because you're saying to one degree or another, what Jesus did is either incomplete, it's either insufficient, or it's either ineffective. Let's think about it. If if churches don't grow, did did Jesus fail? Did he fail in his task? Did Did he not do enough? What did Jesus say when he was at the cross? It is finished. He will bear fruit, and he bears his fruit in Christians and in churches. Here's the problem today, though, is that many Christians are trying to grow their churches without Jesus' resurrection power. If you just listen to how people talk about how churches grow today, most of the discussions fall into the category of few things. Successful marketing, buildings, programs, budgets, strategies. The buzzword, attraction. How do we attract this demographic? How do we get these people in our churches? What do we need? A state-of-the-art facility? We need a charismatic leader up here? Are we missing? We're just missing the right program that's going to fix everything. Maybe we need an entertaining rock band up here. But the problem is is that these are not in themselves supernatural ways to grow a church. Because there's a big difference between drawing a crowd into a church building than building a supernatural church. Because only one of those requires a dead man to walk out of the tomb. Because if you're attracting people to church with some sort of entertainment or playing to natural desires within them for community, guys, everyone wants to be with people who are like them, who like the same things. If that's what you're trying to do in the church, then it will not ultimately be centered around the gospel, but ultimately about whatever social characteristic you are hoping to draw people into the church with. What you end up with is you end up with a gospel plus community. Just think about God's marketing strategy in the New Testament. He's displaying the foolishness of the cross and the church to the world. Not its attractiveness. 1 Corinthians 1. The church was designed to be a community that makes much of Jesus and points people's attention to him. So how does this resurrection power 
flow into our churches. How do we harness it? We harness it through God's Word. I preached a sermon on this a few weeks ago in the Sunday evening service. I don't have time to go into all of that. But the same power that flows from the pulpit when the Word is proclaimed is coming from the empty tomb. As people see the glory of Jesus and grow in the knowledge of God, the church is connected to the resurrection power flowing from Jesus' tomb. So the preaching of God's Word the studying of God's Word, the growth and understanding God's Word, all of these things, when they show the glory of Jesus, give spiritual life to God's people. And what do we do? We accompany these things by prayer that God would take what we plant and give spiritual life. Now, it's important to note that there is a second implication from this text that ties the principle of the seed that bears fruit directly to the local church. So if the main point of our sermon was the seed enters into the ground and dies, it bears fruit, this isn't just talking about Jesus. The second point of our sermon is the seeds. Look at the text again. 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life, loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And wherever I am, there will my servant be also. And if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. It's one of these classic examples where John packs a double meaning into a text. He's saying that Jesus is the seed that dies but the way in particular that the spiritual growth grows in the church is in the seeds, the Christians dying as well. So what this text is, it's a call for every Christian to live a life of dying to ourselves in order to follow Jesus. So why is that important? Because God, think about the analogy, God produces spiritual growth in a church as we, the seeds, lay ourselves into the ground and die. And then we bear the spiritual fruit of Jesus' resurrection in the church. May I say that again because that's super important. Because God produces spiritual growth as in us as a church when all of us follow Jesus, laying ourselves into the ground and dying. And then we bear spiritual fruit of Jesus' resurrection. So if you want God to bear the power of spiritual growth in our church, you must die as well. Because if we are not a community marked by individuals dying to ourselves to follow Jesus, we will not see the fruit of Jesus' resurrection and death in our churches. Here are two ways for the rest of our sermon that, that Scripture calls for each of us to be dying to ourselves. First, we must die to sin. We must die to sin, guys. Because of the empty tomb, this is really important, Jesus has freed born-again Christians from the power and the reign of sin in our lives. While we once were under the burden of sin, you guys once were being carried along by one sinful impulse to another. Christ broke this power in us through his death. It's really important. 
And now he gives us the ability to obey him. Here's a few places for this. Romans 6. I would go, if you're curious about this, just take Romans 6 and stare at it for the rest of the afternoon. It would be a good use of your time. Romans 6, 4. He's, Paul says, therefore, we were buried. Think of the death and seed analogy. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. So in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too might walk in newness of life. We are buried with Christ in death. We walk in this new life. Romans 6, 6 through 7. We know that our old self was crucified with him. We're at the body of sin. Our old nature might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Christians, you, show that you have experienced this resurrection power by living a life of war against your flesh and against your sinful desires. Romans 8.13 For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So every Christian shows that they have been brought from death to life by putting sins to death. Repentance and pursuing holiness is a self-denying, sin-crucifying way that God produces spiritual life in the Christian and also in the church. But sadly, many churches today are not marked by its members being committed to this self, radically self-crucifying life that Jesus calls for all of us to obey. Let's think about all of the polite sins that it's easy for us to overlook. Things like gossip, jealousy, pride, selfishness, things like judgmentalism, impatience, bitterness. Then also think about the ones that the church tends to ignore, act like they don't exist. Sexual immorality, pornography, divorce, domestic abuse, drunkenness. I don't bring any of these up just to embarrass anyone or condemn anyone, but you, we just need to know that these things are happening in the U.S. and in our churches in such a way that the statistics are out there for that us to act like they don't exist, that we're somehow immune to them, is just us lying. So I'm not trying to embarrass anyone or condemn anyone, but I want to make sure that you know what this text is saying if that is you. Really important. If you find yourself today caught in one of these things that I just mentioned, that you are depriving yourself of true, lasting joy and life. The greatest lie of sin is that it's offering you some sort of freedom or satisfaction or life. But it's the ultimate bait and switch, guys. Whatever joys and freedoms that sin offers you, they always come up empty because the one offering them to you ultimately wants to destroy you. John 10.10. 10. The thief comes to do three things. To steal, to kill, and to destroy. Satan says, I'll offer you freedom. All that he wants to do is to see you ruined. Amen. But Jesus came to do what? That he, we might have life, have it abundantly. Sin lies to you. It deprives you. It isolates you. It wants to ruin you. It may seem fun and freeing right now, but it ultimately will come up empty. Just give it time. Just wait. 
and you will see the damage and the destroy, destruction that it has done in your life and those around you. And ultimately, as this text points to, it will destroy your soul eternally. So if that is you today, Jesus offers you the only pathway to true flourishing in life. The fruit of Jesus' death and resurrection is offered to everyone here today. But the way for you to get to it is to be the seed. You must put yourself and your sin into the ground and die. And you must die to these sins, take your desires, your wants, your pet sins, and you must nail them to the cross. John 12, 26. Look at that again. If anyone, or 25, whoever loves his life, life of sin, loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Here's something I want us to consider for us corporately as a church. Because the biggest problem is when churches allow for sins to go unaddressed and its members are not encouraging each other in holiness. Because it inevitably contradicts the gospel and this principle for growth. Remember, Jesus died from these sins. He has broken the power of it. He calls all of us to show that he has done this in us as a church following Jesus, putting ourselves to death. So when a church is no longer known for holiness and faithfulness to God, but is known for tolerating sins, we are no longer bearing witness to Jesus. Because instead of Jesus being visibly shown as reigning, because people are showing their commitments to him, sin is reigning, and we are showing our commitment to ourselves. Friend, I want to make sure you know here, if you're a member here, nothing that you ultimately do is private because your sin affects the entire body. If you are a member here, you are called to be holy because we are all called to be holy and how you live impacts the whole body. You want an example? Go to the book of the Old Testament, Joshua. People of Israel entering into the promised land. Everything's great. They go, from jo- they go from Jericho, awesome, but then they get to the next city and they suffer a terrible defeat. Why? Because between those two battles, one person disobeyed the Lord. You know what God did? He stopped the whole train and said, there is sin in the body. We are not going anywhere until you address it. Do we think that the church would be different today? Has, has God changed? Just think about it. If you just read the whole Testament, Old Testament, God has no qualms in destroying the plans, hopes, goals, dreams of his people when they stop listening to his word and allow for sin to live peacefully among them. Just ask Israel. Guys, we must fear God as Christians and recognize that he is more passionate about preserving his glory than tolerating any rebellious local church. If you're not going to obey me, fine. I'll take my lampstand back. Guys, you must be dying to sin or you will not be seeing spiritual fruit in your life and we will not be seeing spiritual fruit in the church. First point, we must die to sins. Second, Christ calls for all of us to die to our preferences. So we see a church, we see spiritual fruit in the church when the body is defined by people who are regularly dying to their preferences. Guys, we at First Baptist, we have lots of great things that we do here. Some of these things are commanded for us to do. We regularly sing and we do hear God's word. We encourage one another. But then there's this other category of this thing called preference. 
Because whenever the church does something that in the particulars God does not give us complete, explicit commands for how it ought to be done, it falls into the category of preference. So preaching of Scripture, command. How long? Preference. Singing, command. Style, preference. Gathering together, command. What it or it we look like, preference. Discipleship, fourth. Discipleship, command. Program small group Sunday school, preference. Here's the thing with preferences, guys. If you got 200 people, you have 200 sets of preferences, right? Everyone has the things that they love to do. The songs they like to sing, the programs you have, the way things are done, all of that is fine. It is not bad, and you guys are expected to have preferences. But the issue comes up with how tightly you hold on to your preferences. So what happens in the church when things don't quite go the way that you want them to? How do you respond when your desires aren't met? Because when your preferences meet the preferences of someone else in the congregation, God calls you to take your preferences and put them into the ground out of love for others. Just consider these verses, John, 1 Corinthians 3.15. 13.5, sorry, 13.5. Love does not insist on its own way. 1 Corinthians 10.24. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Romans 12.10. Let love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Guys, Paul wrote to a church in Ephesus that was being torn in part because it was made up of people from two completely different backgrounds. You know what he told them? You guys are one person in Christ be unified together and show love towards one another as you guys follow Jesus. He wrote to a church in Corinth where it was personalities and power struggles. And Paul told them, even if you think you have the best gift, top mark, if you do not have love for others, it is worthless. Paul wrote to a church in Philippi where everyone is marked by divisions and seeking their own way. You know what he says there? Philippians 2, 3 through 4. Do nothing from sinful ambitious or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but then also to the interests of others. Then he goes to the example. You know who he picks? He picks Jesus. What do you guys think Jesus' preference was? What did Jesus deserve? Guys, it wasn't, it wasn't death. Jesus gave up everything that was rightfully his as God and became man and went to a cross that he might save you. If he kept his own preference, he would have been remaining in heaven and you would be dead in your sins. He emptied himself, taking the form of a servant and died for you that you might live. What does Jesus say in John 13, 34 through 35? Just as I have loved you, how do you love you? You also love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So here's what, call, what Jesus is calling for all of us to do. He is calling for all of us. You know, Take your preferences. Let people know what you think. But then, when the conflict comes, you take these things that you love, and out of love for others, let them go. So that we might show that we love Jesus by how we love one another in the church. Amen. Because sadly, many 
churches have become places marked by these conflicts between different factions or groups. So instead of this self-sacrificial service that Jesus models and expects his followers, members come to church only focused on what they get and what their group desires. I have this, I need that, I this done this way, that done that way. I have my needs, I need them met. If they're not met, I'm taking my ball and going somewhere else. If this type of sinful attitude is unaddressed, guys, just give it time, one party wins. And then the church focuses on serving the preferences of one particular group. Or you have different separations, right? Let's do this group over here, this group over here. But then the church loses its focus on discipling the whole body and sharing the gospel because it's trying to keep multiple factions in the church happy at the same time. But you know what the most dangerous part is? You know what you've just done? If that happens, you have trained every single person that church is a place where I come to to get my needs filled. And so, if you have individuals who don't feel like they're part of the majority, they have learned that church is a place that I go to where my needs are met. So they do what everyone else is doing. And they go look for a place to call church. Guys, there's a very troubling thing happening in the SBC right now. You have the SBC, Southern Baptist Convention, being split into two groups. You have these older, established churches with church buildings, some of them in numerical decline, and you have lots of brand new church plants. What's happening? You have different groups of people in the church who are more focused on keeping their preferences than following Jesus' command to love and serve one another. And the only way that churches move past this point is for everyone to take the posture of Jesus. Each Christian takes their preferences, holds them out, lets them go. And they follow Jesus. Because you can't pick up a cross when you are holding on as tightly as you can to your preferences and desires for the church. John 12, 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. Matthew 16, 24, Jesus told the disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. I want to make one quick comment about the seriousness of this point, though. Here's a reflective question for everyone in the church. How do your preferences impact how you think the church should grow? How do your preferences impact how you think the church should grow? When you think of your ideal church, what does it look like? Who's in the church? Is it people from a different type, certain type of background, likes, stage of life? Imagine this situation playing out in a church. A church is praying for spiritual growth. God, we really want you to grow your church. Please help us grow your church. We want to bring people. Then Jesus loves this prayer, right? He gets really excited. He takes this person who has been considering the gospel. Boom, spiritual life. And then it's great. They become a Christian. And then Jesus leads this person to the doors of the church and saying, don't worry. I have this special place. It's a community marked by my love for you. They will nurture you. They will disciple you. They will love you like you have never been loved before. And then the door is open. This new Christian walks in. 
But then all the members start looking around each other. But then God hears a new type of prayer. God, did, did, you, not, did you not hear our prayer? I, I said you wanted, I wanted you to grow our church, you know, with people who come to our church. This, this isn't quite what we, what we had in mind. If someone is asking for God to grow his church, they have no place to put qualifications on that request. Because here's the bottom line, the question I want all of us to wrestle with. Are we a church that God can entrust to love, disciple, take care of, or save anyone in Lawrence County? Anyone. Regardless of your, your background, education, social economic status, race, maybe their preferences. Now here's the thing. If you answer that question with a yes, but, and then you add in whatever preference that you need to make sure that everyone who joins the church meets, guys, we have a serious problem. Because then your preferences are coming into direct conflict with Christ's mission for his church. And we are literally adding non-essential requirements for people to hear the gospel and grow in Jesus. Because if God cannot trust us with any person who he brings to himself here and where God has put us, then we're not going to see supernatural fruit in the church. And Jesus said in Luke 10, too, that the harvest is plentiful, but it's the laborers are a few. This is something I've really wrestled with, guys. Even just in thinking about God has our church exactly where he wants us. He's not surprised. He knows exactly where we are. And I just wonder sometimes, just personally thinking about it, that if, I, I'm not really sure that the problem is necessarily with, with how churches are going today, that it has anything really to do with God. You know, God wants to grow his church. There, it's not that there aren't people in the community who need to come to Jesus, but the problem is, is that churches can be so busy fighting among themselves to keep their preferences that Jesus just goes to the church down the street. Friends, God grows his church through his people dying to themselves that he might grow spiritual fruit. When we die, when we make Jesus the center of the church, depend upon his power for resurrection growth, when we take our sins and we crucify them, we take our preferences and just drive a nail through them, when we do this, that is how you grow a church. And I want to do some self-assessing for a second. If you're wrestling with some of the things that I've said, do you have a tension between yourself? Are you a bit uncomfortable? Good. I want you to focus on that for a second. You know what that is? That is the feeling of dying. Don't miss this. Focus on that. Grab that and don't let it go. Because this is what it feels like when we are compounded or confronted by God's word and we look at ourselves. That's what it feels like to be caught in the tension between the pathway towards death and the pathway towards life. Guys, when Jesus says here that we ought to die to ourselves, it did not, it did not mean that it was going to feel like laying in a bed of flowers. It would feel like literally part of ourselves was dying. 
And if we are going to grow spiritually as a church, grow the spiritual fruit of Jesus' resurrection, then we corporately need that, feel that tug to die to ourselves every day. It means taking ourselves, the sins we ignore, the things we want, the things we desire, the things that we think the church needs to do, the way that we think God should grow His church, hold Him up to the cross, grabbing a nail, and driving it into it. Friends, God is calling all of us today. Will you follow Jesus? Will you let go of your preferences, your sin, pick up your crosses and follow Him? Will you remain alone in death, or will you let go and find life? If you do, if you let go, if you die to yourself, God promises not only that he'll bring spiritual fruit into your life, but he will bring spiritual fruit in this church. For truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Let me pray.